And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. In the councils of government, we must car guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. That we can, and so help us God, we will make America great again. What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the No Gimmicks Podcast. I'm your humble host, as always, Brady Leonard. Hopefully you guys had a great weekend and a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and all that good stuff. I apologize. I was off for two weeks. I was off for a week over Christmas, obviously. And then last week, I was sick as a dog with the flu, and I lost my voice, and it was it was rough. So I apologize. I will make it up to you. Uh, 2020 will be a great year for the No Gimmicks Podcast. A lot of cool stuff in the works. Um, so, yeah. Didn't do any news of the day today. Uh, I did my annual year-end award show, looking back at the year of our Lord 2019, giving out some awards uh, to various people for good and bad things. <laughs> In 2019, I was joined by my good friend Eric Schaefer. Always good talking to Eric. Uh, we, we handed out our awards for Man of the Year, Douchebag of the Year, Most Important and Least Important News Stories of the Year. And then we also gave our favorite movie and favorite TV show of the last decade. So we had a lot of fun. Uh, guys, please follow us on Twitter at NoGimmicksPod. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play. If you're on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating and a good review. I'd really appreciate it. And if you like what you're hearing and want to get involved, hit us up over on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. All right. Without further ado, the year-end award show with Eric Schaefer. <laughs> All right, guys, we're here with Eric Schaefer. Eric, my brother, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Brady. I'm doing pretty good. I, I understand that, um, you know, you haven't done the podcast for two weeks, you lazy asshole. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. Uh, I, I just want your audience to know that I desperately tried to convince you to talk about current events today, and he said no because he hates all of you. So if I think you guys should all abandon Brady and come over to me, follow me on Twitter, you know, come, I'm starting a new show here pretty soon. You should, you just abandon this guy. He doesn't care about you. Like I do. Thanks for that's So sweet, Eric. Thank you so much. For that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is uh, it's hilarious. Well, all right, guys, one, uh, I, I plan on taking a week off for Christmas. Obviously I was going to do shows last week on the 30th and on, on new year's day, but I was extremely sick. And lost my voice and had a really bad flu. So it was like, I mean, I had such a bad fever, I couldn't even focus on anything. I was like, okay, if I do a podcast, it's not it's not going to be good. <laughs> it's not going to be pretty. So I spared you all from listening to my extremely sick ass try to fumble my way through a podcast. But um, yeah, like there's actually a ton of stuff going on in the news right now. Um, you know, we killed Iran's top general. Leftists are pretending that we're going to war for some reason. We're not. Uh, Ricky Gervais just burned Los Angeles, California to the ground. <laughs> so, like, and, but I'll get, I'll, I'll touch on all of that on Wednesday because now it is time for our annual year end recap and award show. Eric, are you, are you as excited what? for this? Are you as excited as I am, man? I I'm excited for this one. We're not doing current events, oh, hell yeah, dude. but it is, it's going to be a good one. So here are the categories this year. And I've, I've, I think this is the third year that I've done a show like this to start off a new year. And I always change the categories, but I'm pretty happy with them this year. We're doing Man of the Year, Douchebag of the Year, 
the most important and least important news stories of the year. And we will also take a look back at the last decade in the world of entertainment and uh, give our favorite movie, TV show, and album of the last 10 years, the 2010s. So, first up, the big one, man of the year. It could also be a woman or whatever, person of the year. It's kind of like a Time Magazine kind of thing. Who's your man of the year, Eric? It's really difficult for me because, you know, I'm when it comes to politics, I'm kind of a cynic. Like, <laughs> I, like I, I don't think of um, too many people as being necessarily good actors or doing things out of altruism. But my man of the year is actually, and I'm, I think this is kind of like a cliche answer, but my man of the year is Joe Rogan. I love that guy to death. And the fact that I think he's one of the only people, because like he himself, and the fact that the right can try and claim him only proves how good he is at this. He himself is like a rabid, rabid, and not saying that in a bad way, but he's rabidly to the left. He's extremely to the left. He's like pro-Medicare for all. He's pro pretty much everything under the sun. I actually, I don't know where he stands. I think, I, I don't know where he stands on abortion, but he basically takes the hardline Bernie Sanders position on almost anything. And yet he's having people on his show, not just, you know, Bernie Sanders, who he actually did have a decent conversation with. I'll give him that. But he's having right wingers on his show. He's having Ben Shapiro on his show. He's having Stephen Crowder on his show. He's having all these prominent right wingers on his show and giving them a chance to actually speak their mind and give their reasoning for things. And I think that that's so rare for anyone with a platform to actually do, to give people on the right, to give honest conservatives a fair shake and to let them explain their side of side of the uh, side of the debate so I'd, I'd have to say man of the year in terms of just the political spectrum unless i'm forgetting anyone which i very well could be my memory is at, notoriously dog shit i i like him i, I think joe rogan's it I, I love the guy i think he's and i think he's also one of the very few people who kind of delves into politics that as frequently as possible tries to act in good faith i mean the only time you're going to get him noticeably pissed off is when you bash marijuana so, so <laughs> that's that's true. I, I don't know. I, I think he's a good guy. No, I think you're absolutely right. I, I love Joe Rogan. He's kind of the guy that got me into listening to podcasts back in the day. Um, you know, I, 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 who knows? I, I may not even have wanted to start a podcast myself if it wasn't for Joe Rogan. You know what I mean? I, because like you know, on, on this show, I kind of try to bridge the gap between like a normal punditry show. And like a Joe Rogan type conversational show, and I kind of just shoot right in the middle of those two concepts, and you know, hopefully people like it. <laughs> but yeah, like I, I think you're absolutely right about Rogan not doing anything in bad faith, which is extremely rare um, when you're talking about the world of politics. And obviously, he's not really in the world of politics, but he does have conversations with a lot of political actors and politicians. I mean, heck, he had Tulsi Gabbard and Dan Crenshaw on the show, and like in the same week or the same couple weeks. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And he had very interesting, productive conversations with both of them, you know? And even though Rogan is on the left on a lot of things, not, you know, he's a, he's a big gun owner and stuff and a big hunter. Uh, so, you know, the left doesn't like that. But, yeah, on most things he is on the left. But you wouldn't really know it when he's having these conversations with guys like Dan Crenshaw and Ben Shapiro. So that's a good one. I didn't even think in the world of, like, media or podcast or anything. That's a good one. My man of the year this year, uh, I'm going with Boris Johnson. I'm going with old crazy Boris, the prime minister of England. Uh, I mean, Boris Johnson didn't just destroy the socialists in England. He didn't just end the career of an anti-Semitic communist, Jeremy Corbyn. He did it. <laughs> he did it in a landslide. 
I mean, that was a brutal victory for the Conservative Party in the UK. It was actually it was the largest <laughs> blowout since Margaret Thatcher in 1987. So, which is you know whatever, th- 33 years ago. Uh, I mean, imagine like you know, <clears throat> usually election you don't really have massive landslides like that in the United States. I think the last time we had it, one here was 1984, Reagan Mondale. But you know, obviously it's a different system how they elect people. You vote for for MPs and then the the ruling party picks the prime minister or their leader becomes prime minister. But like to put it in American terms, like imagine Trump this year winning 35 states and winning the popular vote by 10 million. Okay. Like that's the kind of blowout uh, we saw in England a couple months ago. And uh, yeah, man, the, the English people stared down the barrel of a communist future and they, they told the commies to go fuck themselves. So <laughs> for that reason, uh, I got to go with Boris Johnson. Well, I, and I think the really interesting thing about Boris Johnson, now obviously uh, the United Kingdom, specifically Britain, is not the United States. Not if I had my way. I, I want to make them the 51st state, and I'll use force if necessary. But I, <laughs> I think the important thing to note about this entire thing is that one of the reasons that Boris Johnson won isn't just because he's an appealing candidate. There's actually a lot of – I mean I, I, I actually love Boris Johnson, but a lot of English voters and some English friends who are conservative who I've talked to – are saying that he's not necessarily an appealing candidate. It's more so that the British left has moved so far to the left. They are such socialists. Not only are they not only are they embracing full-on socialism, which is a term I don't use lightly. I think boomers and American pundits overuse the term socialism. No, Brit, the Brits have, it seems as if the British left has largely embraced socialism. It, but it's not just that they embrace socialism, because the British left has embraced socialist ideals for a while, and I don't think it's... That that out of the realm of kind of possibility or, or realism to say that British voters would be kind of okay with the Brits endorsing more radical socialism. The issue is that as you move further and further to the left, as you kind of get to the more rabid extremes, you start to run into people who I think socialism is a natural evil ideology, but I think there are some people like we've talked about this on the podcast before. I think there are some people who support it who are just misguided. But when you talk about socialist political leaders, you move from just the realm of misguided lib to I am an actual bad person, I am a rabid anti-Semite, or I'm a racist. Usually it's kind of rabid anti-Semitism. And I think that's what the British have really noticed. They've, they've noticed that as – I think a lot of them don't like the move to radical, radical socialism, but even the more socialistic base isn't encouraged to vote for a party and for a man that you notice isn't – anti-Semite. Hell, even people who don't agree with Zionism. There are people who didn't agree with Zionism who are coming out and saying they hated Jeremy Corbyn because Jeremy Corbyn was outright saying not only does does um, Israel, like he was questioning whether Israel has a right to exist. Right. He, he was, and it's like, it, whether you like Zionism or not, when you question outright, does country have a right to exist? Because not disliking, I know people who dislike Zionism, the idea while still saying – I do know people like this – while still saying that Israel itself has a right to exist. They don't necessarily like the idea of all the Jews in the world flocking together because they feel like the people that I know, the good people, just they feel that that segregates Jews from the rest of the world, which I can see the argument. I disagree with it, but I can see it. But they even they would say that Jews and Israel have a right to exist. When you've got a guy so rapidly anti-Jew, so rapidly anti-Israel that he's questioning a, a sovereign country's right to exist – well, then you're not going to get people voting for him. And I just think that you notice on the rabid left, 
that it, they embrace anti-Semitism far too often. So it's less so. I think Boris Johnson's a funny dude. I think he's a smart guy. I mean, I think he went to Oxford, didn't he? Yeah, um, he was. A, yeah, that, that's another thing about about uh, Boris Johnson is that he's you know he was a classics professor. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw the uh, the video going around Twitter the other day when he <laughs> recited the Odyssey from memory in ancient Greek. <laughs> like this guy is a you know people you know call him like the the British version of Donald Trump, and, and I'm not saying. Donald Trump's not a smart guy. He is a smart guy. But, I mean, Boris Johnson is a very intellectual dude. He's a very different kind of thinker and different kind of leader as, as somebody like Donald Trump, if you look past the kind of the hair and the antics kind of thing. But he, he's just, yeah, just aside from the massive victory over the, the, the socialists and the anti-Semites, he's just a, he's a, seems like a cool dude. He's a very interesting guy. I like hearing him talk. Yeah, he's funny. You know, he always, like, you know, remember he, uh, he brought... The press corps outside of his house, like a bunch of tea, and then refused to answer, <laughs> answer questions and went back inside. <laughs> like I like all that shit, you know what I mean? Did I grab? I grab a pint with uh, with Boris Johnson. Absolutely. Also, like my my whole thing is, um, I think Trump is smart in a business sense. Like if you get the guy, listen, if I have to work on real estate. Okay, I'm gonna go with Donald, and I want to make money. All right, I'm gonna go with Donald Trump. But if I'm gonna Boris, there's a difference between kind of business savvy, which Donald Trump is, and actually full-fledged intelligent. I think Boris Johnson is actually intelligent, like intellectual intelligent, politically intelligent. And that's why I, I it, there's actually a um, really interesting theory that he actually embraces this image of being the English version of Donald Trump because it gives him more credibility with the common man. Right. And I think exactly. that's smart. That's smart. And that's exact. I think that's exactly what he's doing. And that also just proved that in terms of political strategy, again, we're not talking about business. Like in terms of for any people who are listening who may get mad, like, are you saying Donald Trump's stupid? Yes, but not in a business sense. For <laughs> in terms of political strategy, I think it just proves that he, unlike Donald Trump, is is pretty savvy. Yeah, well, I mean, Donald Trump is politically savvy by accident. Like he's he's politically yeah. savvy because that's just how that's just who he is, just as a human being. You know, just his personality is just nat what he does naturally by accident <laughs> resonated with the American people. When Boris Johnson actually thinks about these things, like he, he like you said, he noticed that about Donald Trump and embraced some of those, you know, those antics to, uh, you know, to appeal to the working class over in England and stuff like that. Like he's a, he's a much deeper thinker than somebody like a Donald Trump. Donald Trump kind of forced gumped his way into it. Boris Johnson spent a career crafting that image you know what i mean to the point where it would pay off and you become prime minister so but yeah man i think uh joe rogan boris johnson both good choices can't really go wrong there who is your douchebag <laughs> of the year uh okay so i was thinking about it in a strictly in a strictly american context right so for anyone who like hears this and they're like oh what about xi jinping in china i'm ready for him i have something on him later for one of the awards later uh, but, but I actually do legitimately think douchebag of the year, and it's kind of like this almost every year. It was, I think it was Donald Trump. I think he's – we were talking about this before the podcast. I think in terms of just political douchebaggery, like here's the <laughs> issue. Everyone, every politician – I'm going to make my case. Every politician appeals to some form of – well, until recently, they appeal to some form of political civility, even if you don't like the left – 
like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, they're just things that even though they're douchebags, they wouldn't say. Donald Trump's the guy who will go out there at a rally and say that a Democratic, a long time respected, by the way, Democratic congressman's <laughs> in fucking hell. It's terrible. That was as bad. In fucking hell. And, and he said and it he's like, and he's like, in Detroit. Exactly. And he's in talking Michigan. about this guy's bad, wife, like man. how he gave this guy a funeral. Like how he gave this guy a funeral and how his wife sobbing called him to thank him. And then he says that her husband's in hell. It's not like not what good. the it not takes good. a real douchebag to do that. I'm sorry, there's no politician like listen, Nancy Pelosi in a political sense, pure fucking douchebag. I pure douchebag, yeah. yes. In a political sense, Chuck Schumer, pure douchebag. Donald Trump brings a new element to it. And the only reason I'm saying him is because I, I think he's gonna win re-election, but there's a there's a possibility for everything. So assuming he doesn't win in 2020, I got to get out, get it out of the way now. Douchebag of the year goes to Donald Trump because it's the first and only time I've been able to do this. Douchebag of the year goes to Donald Trump. I think beyond just being like that typical, there are a lot of people who ask me why I struggle, would struggle in 2020 to, I would never vote for a socialist, but why I'd struggle to put Donald Trump's name on the ballot. And it's specifically because I at least like my politicians to act like they have a modicum of decency. And there's a difference between being a counter puncher in the culture and getting the media's goat, which I, I laugh at and I think he does a good job at, and then just being ruthlessly, publicly I, I'm going to say it, it's not going to make me sound like a 10-year-old, but being ruthlessly publicly mean and mean-spirited. And I think that's what Donald Trump is for all the credit he gets about being a counterculture. I think he's a petty man. I think he does things that he doesn't need to do. He does. He goes out of his way to be a douche when it's going to politically possibly hurt him, at least for five minutes. I I know he doesn't care, but it's like there's no reason to be a douchebag in some situations, and yet he does it anyway. <laughs> I, I I think he's – and it's funny, but at the same time, yeah, I think he's – and if Donald Trump's not an acceptable answer, uh, then I obvious, obviously have to go with uh, – to the viewers, then I obviously have to go with um, Ilhan Omar, just, you know, and Rashida Tlaib. They, they'd, get, they'd get a tie, you know, rapidly anti-Semitic congresswoman. But I, 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 my thought process was I wanted to focus on people with political significance, not – two-bit no-names from two, uh, two congressional districts who probably won't win re-election. And even if they did, they're going to have no higher aspiration in office. So that, that, was my, that was my thinking, is I wanted to look at the leader of my, my party and the person who's actually president instead of two no-names who are possibly going to lose re-election anyway. Well, I also, it's interesting that you, for Douchebag of the Year, you went to, like, just specifically how we Americans call each other douchebags. <laughs> you, like just the definition of like man that was a that was a dick move douchebag yeah you know? so i mean i think i definitely think donald trump fits that category and look if we're being honest like we can't just say donald trump for everything yeah you know, like you know t look if we're being honest donald trump has been the man of the year and the douchebag of the year every year since 2015 i mean when you have somebody who takes up all of the oxygen out of the room like he monopolizes every news cycle like you know he is the the man of the year and the douchebag of the year every year it's like you know but you got to give it to other people it's like how lebron james probably should have been like league mvp in the nba every year for the last 15 years but like they gave it to him a few times and then they're like all right this is kind of boring let's give it to steve nash and let's give it to Derek rose and let's give it to, you know whatever because you can't just give it let's give it to dirk Nowitzki. you know like you can't just give it to lebron even though he clearly is the most valuable player you know but uh but yeah it, you know i think uh, he definitely earns douchebag of the year my douchebag of the year is kind of a collective 
And I'm going with the alt-right. I'm going with the groipers, as they uh, call themselves these days. I still don't know. I mean, I didn't even know who these people were until you brought it up on this podcast a couple months ago. Um, And I still don't know the origin of that word itself, groipers. I don't know if it's just a strictly made-up idiot word or something, or if it is supposed to mean something. But I'm going with the groipers. These pathetic little varmin keep popping up on the fringes from time to time. And this time, it seems like it's more dangerous and more destructive than it has been in the past. They're they're doing a pretty good job of corrupting young conservatives. A lot of people that used to be just normal libertarians and conservatives are now wading into this racist, anti-Semitic, weird little movement that they call the Groipers. And, I, I mean, I'm seeing it. I've seen people that I know become infected with this nonsense. I had a, recently had a situation that I, I told you about, Eric, that uh, a, a, a fellow conservative got involved with Nick Fuentes and all these these racists, and me and a bunch of friends who were in this you know private face, uh, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter chat, we had to basically excommunicate this kid because he was unapologetically supporting these anti-Semitic racists. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I it's, I never thought I'd see the day when normal thinking young men and women would be uh, influenced by these these morons. But it's happening, and it's dangerous. And, and look, I mean, they need to be destroyed. I mean, these people need to be absolutely crushed in 2020. Yeah. Well, I, and I, see when I think of so, by the way, the the groiper, the word groiper refers to this Pepe. You know, Pepe the frog, the meme refers yeah. to this Pepe image, where his like hands are kind of like both locked under his chin and it's kind of an, a profile image. A lot of these alt-right kind of maggots use. Um, but that, that's, so that's where the, the word comes from. And now that's what they call themselves, but it refers to it like a Pepe meme. <clears throat> um, but when you specifically talk about the Groiper, I mean, I, I don't have much more to say about them because I've, I've, I've said on this podcast, we were like on a different podcast. I'd go over my whole spiel again, but I've said what I've said on this podcast, and I think that they are a legitimate threat to the right. They are a legitimate threat to the right. They are people who have vast amounts of – because here's the issue. When you know how to operate social media, yes, as I think I said this on your show too. Yes, they're not as powerful in real life as they are on social media. I get that. But when you have power on social media, that means you do have power to sway the younger generation. And it means you also have power to possibly sway some just social media savvy people. Especially when you're you're initially convincing people to come over to you by sounding reasonable, because like I said, you make one or two reasonable criticisms of the right, you hide your your racist anti-Semitic views, and then once you make someone think you're reasonable, and once you make someone think, oh, okay, well they they have one or two valid criticisms, they're being pretty reasonable here, then you start breaking out the extreme beliefs more and more slowly, and that's kind of how you trick people. Not only trick, but that's kind of how you convince people into becoming racist. I mean, I, I hate to use Hitler, but I think uh, in, in in reference here, I'm not saying, you know, the Groypers are literally Hitler. But I am saying when you look at history, Hitler is a prime example of this. Hitler didn't start day one with – and obviously if you read um, um, Mein Kampf, it, then yes, he says some vile, evil things about, about the Jews. But Hitler didn't start day one in his German political career – saying, let's kill the Jews. He, he built up to it. He starts right. saying some things about, he starts saying some things about World War One. He starts saying some things about how the Germans have been screwed over by the Treaty of Versailles. There's 
some anti-Semitic language sprinkled in there, but he's not saying, let's kill all the Jews, let's kill your fellow countrymen. And then slowly, once some German people think he sounds reasonable, partially because they're angry and partially because the Treaty of Versailles was absolute bullshit, then you start he, he starts to inculcate this mass following with, okay, now guys, you agreed with me here. Okay, so you got to trust me. I'm fighting for you. These Jews, pretty bad, awful. I think we need to get rid of them. You start to you inculcate people by making them think initially that you're reasonable or that you're fighting for their best interests, and then you get them indoctrinated in a truly evil, vile ideology. And so when I when I say Hitler, Hitler is just a prime example of that in history. Hitler probably did it. The he's one of the people who did it the most masterfully. I think the communists, the Bolsheviks in Russia, are other people. You know, first you're just complaining about how the the monarchy has too much power and how they're abusing the people, which is 100% true. And the next moment you're taking everyone's land and, and uh, inter, uh, implementing Stalinist, Stalinist, uh, Stalinist collectivism about 30 years later. So I, I think they are a major threat to the right because if we let them into the Overton window, if we let, if we allow them to keep up this guise, like they're, they're just mindful conservatives who see issues with the movement and want to reform it. And we don't actually go out of our way to all, always classify them as the alt-right pieces of scum they are. Then you have people that can possibly get convinced. I mean, you see Michelle Malkin and a bunch of other right-wingers dying on a hill to defend them. Yeah. Not just saying they have a right to speak, but actually it's defending what they have to yeah. say. Yeah. It's, it's, it's insane to me. So yeah, I think they're a legitimate threat to the right. I think that's a good selection. I agree with you. And and Michelle Malkin, that, that's the craziest thing about it. Because, I mean, I've never, I haven't followed her career very closely at all. But, I mean, she seemed for a long time to be a normal, reasonable conservative. You know, she's a big border hawk. She's, you know, very conservative immigration and stuff like that. And, of course, there are fair points to be made about that, you know, securing the border and so forth. But, yeah, seeing somebody like that carry water for these racist children— it's like, man, like, I think that's probably the biggest reason why they're they're effective right now is because, you know, people that I thought to be reasonable adults uh, are, are giving them aid and comfort, and it's not good. I mean, these people, and, and their tactics, I can't believe anybody is, is drawn to this ridiculous little movement. I mean, their tactics are ridiculous. They're just going to all these events, like these YAF events and Turning Point USA and, and just accosting people. And screaming and yelling like petulant children. And so, and you saw the video uh, of Nick Fuentes attacking Ben Shapiro and his family. You know, walking into an event somewhere it's, and accosting them in public. It's like, and and you see people cheering this on. I mean, people saying, "Oh, good, yeah, go get Ben Shapiro for some reason." <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, it it's incredible, man. I really hope they uh their their stupid little movement dies a a, a swift death in, in 2020. It's definitely important that we, we kick these people out of the conservative movement and, and don't give them any any aid and comfort the way somebody like Michelle Malkin has. Uh, all right. So a lot of... Uh, I mean, we can talk about the press a little bit here. The next two categories, the most important news story of the year and the least important news story of the year. There has been some important news stories this year. Not many. Uh, most most <laughs> most breaking news turns out to not be very important at all. Um, but what is your most important news story of 2019? So my most important news story, and I, I said earlier that I was going to get Xi, Xi Jinping uh, trying to mention him. I think the most important news story of the year, and it's something that the media has largely ignored, 
And it's it's not just one singular story, but kind of this collection of, of horror that's coming out of China is, uh, and I, I think we've talked about it on this podcast before, the Uyghurs, uh, who the Chinese are currently interning in camps. Uh, and as you, we know, you know, we mentioned Hitler a little while ago, as we know from history, <laughs> when people are put into camps, it's not usually such a good thing. It's actually never a good thing and it never ends well. So my whole thing is, for those of you who don't know, basically the Uyghurs are this ethnic minority in China. They're pre uh, predominantly Muslims. And the Chinese government sees them as an inherent threat to communist culture and Chinese culture. That, and th they're basically herding them into these camps. Uh, most Uyghurs live in the province of Xinjiang. And according to estimates right now, the UN estimates about one million are in camps. The uh, United States State Department has estimated there could be up to two million of these people in camps. And basically, the Chinese government is just labeling these camps as voluntary re-education centers. Oh, they're just going there because we're trying to combat Islamic extremism. And they're going there because we're trying to teach them trades and skills that can make them, make them a, more, a bigger benefit to the economy. But when you actually look at what's happening inside these camps where one to two million people are, are detained against their will, it's, it's anything but the case. They're not voluntary. They are detained against their will. There was a, actually a good piece that Vice did on, on this. Believe it or not, Vice actually does really good foreign journalism. And they went to this one apartment complex that apparently a, a little while ago had been populated by Uyghur Muslims and had now just been totally cleaned out. It was like this whole it, – it, it's kind of like in the Warsaw ghettos when the Nazis would come in and just clear out a whole block of apartments and townhouses. That's exactly what it's like. I mean it was a whole block of apartments that were just completely cleared out of people. No one was living there anymore because the Chinese government came and collected them all. And uh, there was one person that they tried to interview on it who requested that their face be blurred and that their, their voice be distorted because basically when you talk about the camps, you get sent to the camps. Right. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's more about just getting sent to camps. I mean, it's, let's, I mean, for a second, let's talk about what happens in the camps. Basically, what happens in the camps is forced re-education. There was one survivor who got out who basically said that they make you recite communist manifesto uh, propaganda uh, Chinese communist propaganda, sing communist Chinese party songs, and if you don't do that, then you don't eat. You're forced into a cell where it's cramped, so like it's, there's hardly any space to even sit or lay down. Uh, there's torture methods that have been reported from within the camps, such as waterboarding and the tiger chair. And for those of you who don't know what the tiger, uh, tiger chair is, imagine getting strapped to a six-foot-long board and bricks being stacked under your legs until like they're kind of jutted up in such an uncomfortable position where it's destroying your joints and your legs and, and, and your muscle. And they're trying to make you basically confess to a crime that you didn't commit or repent on your Islamic ways. And if you refuse, it either goes until your straps, because they, they strap you to this table, either your straps break and then the process starts over again, or basically your, your legs snap upward and forward. So there, there's also been deaths reported within the camps, but I think those are more sparse. Yeah, there, there has God. been un, unconfirmed also... uh, cases of deaths in these camps. And there's also, there's been several uh, un, unconfirmed reports of, of things even as, as extreme as like organ harvesting and stuff like that. And, you know, obviously it's it's tough to cover China. I mean, we don't really know what's going on in a lot of these camps. Um, there has been a lot of unconfirmed reports of really, really horrific shit going on. Well, yeah, and with the organ harvesting, they... they... This is the disgustingness of the 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 disgusting nature of the Chinese government. The, the organ harvesting isn't even a uniquely Uyghur thing. Right. Apparently, they do that to religious minorities and and political ideologies that they persecute all the time. 
So and like they literally had to promise, I think it was the UN or something, like a, a few years ago, that they would stop organ harvesting. And then there were reports coming out of the camps that they were organ harvesting again. So it, it, it's 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 news story that the media refuses to cover. I'd go so far as to say it is a genocide at this point. If you're not going to classify it as a genocide, then it, it's at the very least genocide esque. And that's just the behavior within the camps. I mean, just to state a few, outside the camps, women's veils have been forcibly cut in public. They're forcing Muslims to eat pork and drink alcohol. They're forcing Muslims to stop celebrating Muslim holidays and instead start celebrating Chinese holidays. It's, um, it's really, really disgusting stuff that's going on. And Or, like, for example, they'll have literally a, a, a communist Chinese official living with Muslim families to observe and report on them. They literally have no privacy. I mean, you talk about the Chinese surveillance state. They have a live person coming into their house, giving – if you have a kid, they'll give your kid, like, toys and candy and then try and get the kids to, like, report on their parents. Like, it's insane. And no Evil. one no one wants to cover it. Evil exists, man. Evil exists in this world. And you're going to see a common theme uh, with with – and that's an excellent choice, by the way. Excellent choice for the most important news story of the year. Uh, you're going to see a common thread between your choice and my choice, and that thread being that the press refuses to talk about it. I mean, the entire press could not care less about the Uyghurs in China. I mean, it just even when the the story broke over the well, we we heard things of, of this nature going on for a couple years now, but it was early in 2019 when a lot of these confirmed reports were breaking. Man, they were out of the news cycle in minutes. I mean, just nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's pathetic. My my most important news story of the year is the Afghanistan papers. The Afghanistan papers. And uh, like I said, this was also out of the news cycle in minutes. I mean, nobody talked about it. Uh, I, I believe the, the day that the Washington Post uh, published, um, and hey, God bless the Washington Post. They actually did real journalism once in their lives. I mean, a broken clock apparently is read twice a day or once a century or something. Um, it's not really how the phrase goes. But I, uh, all three cable news networks failed to cover it, including Fox News. Fox, CNN, and MSNBC said absolutely nothing about the Afghanistan papers for 24 hours after after the Washington Post broke this story. And for anybody that missed it, uh, the, the Afghanistan papers just proved what we all assumed anyway, especially if you have a, a libertarian bent like I do, um, that the federal government has been lying to us for 18 years about Afghanistan, that they've never had a plan, they've never had a clear mission, and they've never had an exit strategy. And any time they've boasted about any progress being made in Afghanistan, they were lying. They were lying through their teeth to the American people. And this goes top to bottom. The CIA lying, the FBI lying, the Pentagon lying, President Bush, President Obama, President Trump, all lying. All, every State Department, every Defense Department, for 18 years, a bunch of liars. We never should have been in Afghanistan. We need to get the hell out right now. Our our boys are just sitting ducks over there. I mean, they're they're sitting they're they're literally in Af Afghanistan serving absolutely no purpose other than filling the role as target practice for the Taliban. It's 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 a it's a shame. It's a damn shame. It's time to end the war in Afghanistan. Uh, and the Afghanistan papers proved it. Yeah. I well the, the crazy thing is I didn't even know about this news so I can't really speak on it because I didn't even know about <laughs> I didn't even know this news story existed until and, and to be fair um, I paid much less attention to the news over the holidays than I than I do when um, 
when they're not ha- happening. But I didn't even know this news story existed. I didn't even know this was happening. How is that possible? And I don't mean you. <laughs> I, I don't mean you. I don't. I don't mean you personally. I mean, how, how is somebody who's as politically involved as you are? I mean, it's just it's absolute malpractice by the press. It is malpractice by the press that they didn't cover the Afghanistan papers. I mean, like, mm-hmm. don't they want transparency in government? Don't they want to expose lies of, of the, the federal government? Apparently not. Uh, I guess we can. it's an easy transition to our next category, the least important news story of the year. What is your least important fuck-up by the press well, I think. Year? I think we can combine our answers on this because I know I I just can't think of anything that's less important than this. That's kind of guising as important is yep. is um, is impeachment. Yep. I mean, and I'll, I'll like I, I know we, we we're gonna try to avoid having the same answer, but it's can't, it's can't just so it. can't, you can't you can't yeah, avoid it's it. It's just so yeah. excuse my French. It's just so fucking unimportant. The oh, only yeah. thing that's important about this is this ever so slight historical significance of it because okay fine when you're the third anything it's it's slightly historically significant so fine third president impeached in the house there you go there's the historical significance aside from that there is listen i think there are issues with the uh with the trump presidency i said on your podcast before i would love if or i would have loved it's too late now i would have loved if this uk or this uh, ukraine stuff was approached in a bipartisan manner, because I know a lot of right-wingers wanted to dismiss it outright, but I think there is, and I still think there is, I think there's the possibility that Trump did something wrong. But when you have it being handled by a house who's not even willing to investigate it, that is salty, that Russia and um, Mueller didn't work out. So now they're trying to find anything they can to impeach the president over. And I'm not even a Trump guy. I hate the dude. I don't like him when I'm saying this shit. When you have a house that is just <laughs> is salty about how Russia turned out, and you, you, they're trying to impeach him over anything, anything. You can't expect them to approach the Ukraine story with even a modicum of integrity. You can't. So listen, no. yes, it's significant that Trump is the third president impeached in the House just because, again, when you're the third at anything, it's significant in history. It's significant. But at the same time, it's like it, it, it doesn't matter. They didn't do their due diligence. If yeah, this was thing. handled in an impartial manner, they did so. That's the thing, Eric. And, and I like Trump a lot more than you do. Um, not like personally, but I think he's done a pretty decent job so far as president. But I, uh, I don't, I mean, they, they don't, I, the only thing I disagree with what you said is that Trump did anything wrong in Ukraine. I don't see it. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it, I mean, I think it's just a, a, a giant load of bullshit. I don't see anything there. And look, it's not, it's not historically significant. It, it should be. It absolutely should be. <laughs> he's only the third. Well, actually, technically he hasn't been impeached because Nancy Pelosi's, just handling this in the most just ridiculous way. I mean, she's like shooting herself in the foot over and over. I mean, I think at this point she's shooting herself, just shooting the ground next to her where her foot <laughs> used to be. Um, Cause te- technically uh, the president has not been impeached yet, but uh, they have nothing. Like you said, you know, they, they put all their eggs in the, in the Mueller basket that didn't work in the Russia basket that didn't work, and then they're moving on to Ukraine, which is weird because Ukraine and Russia are literally at war with each other. So it's, I don't know if anybody with a brain, <laughs> two brain cells to rub together, are really buying that. But it's not historically significant anymore, and impeachment never will be again. And I think that's actually dangerous. I think that is dangerous, and it's the Democrats' fault, and it's it's the press's fault, uh, because nobody's going to take an impeachment inquiry 
seriously in the next 50 years. I mean, it'll, impeachment will just be a joke. It's going to be a partisan joke. There's going to be... The, dude, mark my words. The next 10 presidents will be impeached. So I think that... And none of, none of them will be. None of them will be removed from office. It's just going to be a, so a sideshow. Yeah. I think that take is a bit of a catastrophist one. I, I think there is a big risk of impeachment being devalued to the point where every president in the next, you know, 10 terms, 20 terms is impeached. I, I like, I think that's a possibility. And I think that certainly impeachment has been devalued as, as a method at this point, but I would argue the first devaluation came and I'm going to sound like a real lefty. So I'm sorry. I think, <laughs> I think the first real devaluation came when a Republican house tried, and listen, I think Bill Clinton is an awful, just terrible Oh yeah, I, I agree. I think the no, first... he shouldn't have been impeached. He shouldn't have been impeached. No, I yeah, I... no, I, I think the first evaluation came when he was even when he was even asked under oath if he got a fucking blowjob in the Oval Office, and then like anyone, he, he, because he has a fucking wife, he lied about it. Which, by the way, is still awful. You know, adulter, uh, adultery, and and cheating on your wife, and and cheaters. They're all, like, I have no sympathy for cheaters. I actually have a notoriously low sympathy for cheaters. Yeah. But at the same time, when bad, you ask anyone under oath, bad, not impeachable. Bad, not impeachable. Yeah, exactly. And like, and like at least, <laughs> at, at least Bill Clinton lied under oath. Like, at least he did commit perjury. No, that's what I'm a, saying. At least for he a dumb perjury. reason. It just, yeah, it was stupid. Yeah. It was a stupid question to ask anyone under perjury. Yep. Totally agree. Or under oath. I'm but sorry. look, it, it's, it's a, and, but that take it's not catastrophist because I don't like it. Could be, it is dangerous that we're basically just guaranteeing that no president will ever be removed from office. Like, I think we're guaranteeing a couple of things. One, a bunch of presidents are going to be impeached. And two, they'll never actually be removed from office. So that I think we are kind of losing impeachment as a check on, on the executive branch's power. But also, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing that impeachment is now a joke. Like, I want the president of the United States to be a joke. Like, I, I want the state to be delegitimized. Like, I hated this ridiculous worship of Barack Obama for eight years. I mean, that, it was absolutely pathetic. And I've, I've said this a million times, and I'll say it again. I think my favorite part of the Trump presidency is the fact that half the country now views the office of the president as illegitimate. Like, I don't, like, mm-hmm. all these people are monsters. Every politician is bad, okay? <laughs> like, we should not worship these people. We should not look up to these people. They're a glorified post office worker. We pay their salary to perform a task. That's it. There are equals at best. And I actually look down on Washington, D.C. I don't even think they're equal to the rest of the country. <laughs> I think they're sub-average human beings, okay? So I like the fact that Washington, D.C. is a joke. Yeah, I, I do see the danger in losing impeachment as a check on presidential power, though. That, I'm sure that'll come to bite the country in the ass down the road at some point, and it is all the Democrats' fault. But I'm fine with the delegitimization. Oh, my God. Uh, I can't talk today, man. I'm glad that the state is being delegitimized. I, I, I don't like this hero worship of politicians that we've seen for decades, and I'm fine with uh, them being looked down upon by the rest of us. Well, here's my whole thing. It, the issue with impeachment being delegitimized like this is because the presidency, I mean, it really hasn't. Like, I've listened, yes, 50% of the country is saying that Trump is illegitimately in office. So I, I get that. But at the same time, the powers of the presidency haven't gone away. The overbearing nature of the executive haven't gone away. The only thing that's truly gone away is one ability to actually check it. 
Yeah, that's that's my issue. Is if you're if you're gonna not great. This isn't you. I'm, it's just if you if you're going to delegitimize, if you're going to endanger a check on power, then you better hope that power has already significantly decreased. And I'm sorry, but even under the Trump presidency, the executive powers executive's power has only continued to grow. It's been at a much slower rate because he's had a contentious House and the Senate. But at the same time, it's only continued to grow. Executive spending, uh, federal spending has only continued to balloon. It's actually the rate has, has started, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's actually started to speed up with federal spending and federal debt increases. So I, I get I get your point, but I can't help but disagree with it because when you delegitimize a check without actually delegitimizing, and when I say delegitimizing, I mean actually taking away power right, right. from the executive – then you're you're leaving yourself open for a whole world of hurt. So I, I, I'm still hesitant, like I'm a lot of right wingers to say that, you know, the next ten presidents are going to get impeached. But at the same time, there's this there's this and this isn't you either. Like I've heard this take all over the place. There's this absurd take like, well, maybe the, the next ten presidents getting impeached is a, is a good thing. It's not a good thing. Impeachment is supposed to be a serious procedure, no, regardless of what you not. think of the executive. Yeah. It's, it, it'll never it won't be serious. It, it's for supposed a long to be time. a serious procedure. Yeah. To remove an officer of the United States for abusing their power, and when you give this op- when this officer for the next four years is like a mini king, I mean that's basically what the president is because the Congress is Congress has relegated so much power to pre- presidential edict and executive authority. When you have an executive officer who's essentially like a mini king for four to eight years, you need that legitimate process to, to say, hey, listen, it's it's a hard fought thing, but if you do something out of the realm of totally out of the realm of decency and political standard, and, and you do something that's corrupt, you are going to get out of office. And now I think it's bad because, listen, yeah, presidents are going to have to worry possibly, let's say if the right is correct, presidents have to not deal with headache impeachment, tri- impeachment proceedings throughout their whole presidency. But the issue is those headaches give way to the lack of worry that they'll ever actually get removed. And yeah. I think that's dangerous. Yeah, it's dangerous. You know, And it's funny, too, like— I, I'm not saying Republicans are perfect. They're they're a bunch of degenerates too. I mean, Republicans are short-sighted as well. But the Democrats' short-sightedness on on this entire topic is just astounding. It's like Nancy Pelosi and the rest of them. They all they care about is immediate power. All, all they care about is their immediate agenda. I think they they cannot see two inches past their nose, and it's just it's it's incredible. Because Nancy Pelosi's not a retard, man. I mean, she's not like. She's handling this in the dumbest possible way, but she's not dumb. Like, she doesn't have an IQ of 70, Eric. But she's acting like she does. Like, she's so drunk on her own power and her own hatred of Donald Trump that she's, I mean, she's mishandling this in a profound way. Uh, Because she is an intelligent woman and a crafty politician, and you couldn't tell it. You couldn't tell in 2019. (laughs) You could be proven otherwise in 2019 for sure. So we're running out of time, man. We're we're almost out of time. Um, But let's do a little bit of culture before we wrap up. Uh, give me, and not just in 2019, since we're starting a new decade, we're going to look back at the last decade, the 2010s, your favorite movie, TV show, and album of the 2010s. I'll start favorite movie of the decade, Wolf of Wall Street. Outstanding. What do you got? Uh, for the decade, uh, dude, it's, it's, it's difficult mainly because I'm not a big movie watcher. Like we talked about. Ne- yeah. Neither am I. I yeah. podcast. Uh, I'm more so like a, uh, a, a TV show watcher. But if I had go go with your favorite show first. Like <laughs> okay. this is like the one I didn't prepare for. <laughs> All right, favorite show got to go Game of Thrones. Uh, I don't really think it's particularly close. All the other shows I liked, 
ended in the early, you know, the, the beginning part of the decade. Like Scrubs ended around like 2012-ish. 24 ended around 2010, 2011, something like that. Uh, you know, The Office ended a long time ago. Like a lot of these shows were basically winding down at the beginning of the decade. So yeah, I mean, Game of Thrones, uh, I mean, it's just far superior to anything else on television in the last 10 years. I mean, it's, you know, great writing, great acting. Super interesting story. People fighting to the death. Dragons. Extraordinarily attractive women. I mean, what do you what do you want? I mean, <laughs> you know, it really checks up all the boxes, man. Like, you know, obviously Movies. you have to you have to ignore <laughs> you you have to ignore uh, the last episode of the series, obviously, which was an absolute monstrosity. But looking past that, uh, yeah, man, it's Game of Thrones, and it's not really that close. All right. So for movies, it for me, it's between um, either Ex Machina or It Follows. I think. It, and specifically, I think It Follows probably wins it because I saw it's just, neither of those. So It Follows is basically a movie about so it, it. Basically, if you have sex with someone, so this monster is following people around, and if it catches you, it kills you. And if you have sex with someone who's the mon, who the monster is following around, then the monster starts following you around and tries to kill you. And if it kills you, then it starts descending the chain of people. So then, if it like it, it, it kills you or it kills the person you had sex with, now it's coming after you again, so you have to pass it on. And it's kind of like this elaborate metaphor for STDs. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's like, really it sounds good, hilarious, like, but... Uh. It, it's like, it's a little, the concept is a little funny, but it actually is, like... So while a lot of horrors in the 2010s, I think a lot of horrors, a lot of studios are pumping out cheap thrill horror movies that are all about jump scares and uh, you know foreseeable plot twists and i i feel like it follows is the only movie that gets back to the roots of horror and doesn't just focus on cheap scares and cheap jump scares there is like one or two jump scares in there but it's it's really about suspense because you're constantly like you have this constant when you're watching it it is really good you have this constant feeling of like dread and suspense because this thing is always behind you it's always coming after you. you can't even if you drive across the country in two days it's going to be there all right so it, all right idea it, idea what if hollywood combined this movie with game of thrones <laughs> <laughs> every main character would be dead it's just dead <laughs> they're just dead. <laughs> it's just like a six episode miniseries at that point oh boy um and then ex machina because i think it really does explore uh so ex machina is basically kind of this sci-fi horror it's not even a horror it's like horror in the sense that ai gains sentience it's not the skynet like sense like it actually gains human level emotion and sentience and a want to be free and liberate itself and it's kind of like this movie about the development of this ai this android that starts out as kind of this just normal android and then becomes something more than that becomes human and kind of wants to break away from its masters and it's this guy trying to determine throughout the whole movie is this just an android is it just simulating what i think feelings look like or does it actually feel and uh spoiler alert it came out in 2015 and you should still watch it it ends up that the android actually is a a a being at this point it is a sentient being it is feeling it's more so than just out it's more than just algorithms so i thought it was really good um i have to ask i have to ask because it's called ex machina does the movie end in a ridiculous deus ex machina moment where everything ties no, up. No, no, it's actually good. I was gonna say that would, actually really that would just be that would just lack a lot of self awareness if they if they. Did that. <laughs> uh, no, the on a 
scale of one to ten, I give both movies a ten. Those those are I had to think for a second of what my favorite movies were because, like I said, I don't watch a ton of them. That was for sure my favorite movie, um, or my favorite movies. Um, TV show. I, I am going to go on a little tangent here. I know we're almost out of time, but Wilfred. I feel like it's a lesser known TV show. So basically, the premise is, and I actually I'm not going to spoil it because this is probably my favorite show of all time, and it just so happened to come out in the 2010s. Never uh, heard and of it. It's so good. So basically, it was a series on FX, uh, starred Elijah Wood, and I think Elijah Wood actually helped write a lot of it. And it's basically about this guy, and it, listen, I know it sounds like a stupid concept, but it's like this uh, uh, dark drama comedy. It's basically about this guy who, he does this in the first 10 minutes of the episode, so not really that big a surprise. Um, he, he basically tries to kill himself, and eventually he starts seeing his neighbor's dog as, like, not a dog anymore, but a person in a dog suit. And the person, like the name of the dog is Wilfred. And it's kind of like their adventures and it's, it's, it kind of delves into the thing that I like about the show is that I'm not going to do it justice in trying to explain the plot because the plot sounds inherently fucking stupid, but it delves into what is happiness. How do you attain happiness? Is happiness a realistic goal for you to, to achieve in life? And I can't give away what the series says because eventually that's actually giving away the ending. And it, like I said, it kind of becomes like this. It's It starts out as this kind of raunchy comedy. And then midway through season one, it turns into like this drama, comedy, mystery. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing, like 10 out of 10 show. And what I like about it is that it delves into all, all these complex existential issues and it delves into exactly what happiness is and how to achieve it and what sort of how realistic happiness is as a goal in life. And the thing is, it's a show produced, uh, put out on FX, produced by Hollywood. But the thing that I love about it is that if you really look at it, it's not a really liberal view. It's it, like there's there's some lefty jokes and humor in there, but it's not a highly it really isn't a highly political show. And when it's talking about the existential view of happiness and when it's talking about what happiness should is for individual people. I'd argue that it's more of a deeper philosophical conservative view than it is the shallow, usual Hollywood view of happiness to have as much sex and do as much blow and get as much money as possible. It's, it, it really does look in, into deeper human mentality and what happiness actually means to us all. And that, that's basically the central theme throughout this, the series is happiness. And I love it because it actually sends out a, a rather conservative message on life and on happiness and on how we ought to live our lives. Um, and I just love it. I think it's a really good show, and I think it's one of the few shows out there in Hollywood, despite having an amazing story. I mean, I'm biased now that I'm more politically knowledgeable, but when I was watching this thing back in 2014, I still loved it. And it's just because it is such a deep, amazing, brilliant, funny show that I think people should give it a chance. So I'm not going to spoil anything for it. I can't explain the whole concept right. I risk spoiling something. But watch it. It's called Wilfred. I think it's on Hulu. Uh, and you can also get it on demand if you have like Verizon or something like that. Amazing show. Four I'll seasons to, long. I'll have to check it out. You know, hopefully it ended uh, better than my pick of best TV show ended. Unless the dog or the guy in the dog suit uh, turns into like a communist dictator who kills like two million people <laughs> for no reason. And then the dog's nephew, crippled nephew in a wheelchair becomes king of the world or something like that. So unless that happened, it probably ended better than my selection, but okay. That's all I got time for. We're way over time. Uh, but as always, anytime Eric is on the show, everybody follow, uh, Eric on Twitter at real Eric Schaefer. Yes, he did get his, uh, Twitter account back. So that's nice. 
uh, the Twitter overlords were were merciful this time around. Everybody follow <laughs> Eric. He's great. Uh, keep an eye on him. He's going to start uh, his podcast back up shortly, so uh, stay tuned for that. Um, that's all I got for today. I'm Brady Leonard. I'll be back on Wednesday. No gimmicks. Thank you.